A gunman at a grocery store in the city of Boulder in Colorado has killed at least 10 people exactly a week after another separate attack that targeted Atlanta's Asian-American community. We'll discuss the latest. The co-founder of Airbnb has told Monocle24 how mass travel can play a responsible part in the post-pandemic economic recovery in many parts of the world. And voters in Israel went to the polls today for the fourth time in two years. We'll assess the effects of election fatigue on both those voting in and reporting on today's vote. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Tuesday the 23rd of March and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And joining us today from Milan is Monocle's Europe editor at large, Ed Stocker. And from London is Monocle 24's Daniel Bache. Daniel, Ed, great to have you both with us on the programme once again. It is a Tuesday, Ed. So how's the week started for you there in Milan? Uh, pretty good. Thanks, Tom. Uh, uh, obviously, I, I want to make sure I give enough space for our, our weekly weather roundup with Daniel Bates. So, I, you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep my answer very short. Uh, yeah, I mean, as uh, some listeners will know, we're, we're, we're going into a pretty busy uh, production schedule. We recently uh, went to press on our sister publication, Confect. Um, and we're basically working towards, we, we've got our May, June and Entrepreneurs, which is our business themed issue, all pretty much uh, closely uh, following each other. So so lots bubbling about and lots of ideas happening and, and, and plenty to do, I might add. Busy days ahead, Ed. And Daniel, how about you? As uh, Ed said there, the much anticipated weekly weather check in <laughs> from Daniel Bates in London. How's it looking over there, Daniel? Sunny skies today, Tomas. I'm uh, very happy to report. I, it's because I look out the window when we do these things, and you know, it's it's what's in front of me. But uh, sunny skies and uh, a very busy week to start, which has uh, been great and and always welcome. Working away on the globalist, all things globalist, setting up. Uh, the morning news show, lots uh, in the news this week. It's a nice thing uh, for a news producer, of course. And uh, looking ahead to the entrepreneurs, just putting some final touches on tomorrow's episode. Looking ahead to uh, the weeks uh, ahead as well. We'll talk about uh, tomorrow's episode uh, coming up, I think, as well, Tomas. We will indeed. Looking forward to that. Daniel Bates and Ed Stocker, great to have you both with us on the programme once again today. Well, we begin today's programme in the United States, where 10 people are confirmed to have died at a shooting at a grocery store in the city of Boulder, Colorado. And Ed, to begin with you, Boulder is a city you've reported from in the past for us here at Monocle. And today's shooting comes almost precisely a week after a a mass shooting in Atlanta, where Asian-American women were the target on that occasion look in the six years that i was based out of new york uh, it was an all too familiar story hearing about mass shootings perpetrated by semi-automatic weapons and you know perhaps we've forgotten about it recently with everything that's been happening in coronavirus but the fact like you say two shootings uh within a week of each other really just bring it back into the foreground 10 people killed in boulder it's a small pretty liberal colorado community surrounded by mountains a beautiful place it's crass to say you you couldn't imagine it happening there because really there's not really anywhere in america where where you couldn't 
uh, imagine it happening given uh, the way the gun laws are. But it's kind of cruel in a way that um, Boulder actually tried to ban assault weapons. And uh, just 10 days ago, it was it was blocked by city court. Now, look, I, I'm not suggesting that that necessarily would have changed anything. Basically, the court was saying that the states have to make decisions. And, you know, a city implementing laws wouldn't necessarily change something because you can still get your hands on guns outside the city. Don't forget also that Colorado has seen these sorts of tragedies frequently in the past. One of those shootings that everyone seems to remember, uh, perhaps because children were involved, was in north central Colorado back in 1999. As I'm sure many listeners will remember, that was Columbine in which 12 students were killed and a teacher. And then, of course, there was a, a cinema shooting, the Aurora shooting back in 2012, where 12 uh, people were killed. So Colorado has seen its fair share of what tend to be called mass shootings. And I think that this is going to be a major test for uh, the Democratic administration of Joe Biden. He came to power uh, saying he was going to break... Uh, from the past, break from the Trump administration. As part of his campaign, he said he was going to end what he called the gun violence epidemic. And we've seen, you know, we've seen Kamala Harris uh, calling the shooting absolutely tragic today. Uh, We've seen some some comments from the White House, but um, we'll have to see what happens. Don't forget, there was an assault rifle ban back in 1994 in the states but there was what's called a sunset clause meaning that after 10 years it would have to be renewed and the bush administration at the time when renewal was a a possibility chose not to do that now the fact that obviously uh, the democrats have control of the house of representatives and the senate means that in theory there could be more action on this and you know given everything that biden said before he became president, about how he wanted to uh, really clamp down on assault weapons and end, as I said, this epidemic. It will be really interesting to see what happens uh, in the coming days because, you know, in the past we've seen this sort of cycle of the House of Representatives that has acted and, and passed legislation and then it gets blocked in the Senate. And part of that is due to this system, the fact that, you know, congressional seats uh, are much smaller they're of particular areas. So if you're a Democrat and you're a member of the House of Representatives, you just represent your small little area, which may be liberal. If you're a senator, you are responsible, well, there are two senators per state, so your area is much bigger. So you have to take in mind all your voters. Some Democratic senators in more conservative states have in the past been reluctant to vote on some of this legislation. We'll have to see if uh, this is different. You know, how many times have we said this? Is, is this going to be uh, the thing that changes what America? Is this going to be the tragedy that causes uh politicians in Washington to actually do something about this. Now, of course, there are lots of pressures, including the National Rifle Association. But given that we have a Biden presidency and the Democrats have control of both chambers in the Capitol, one would hope that this may be the time when actual change does happen, Tom. 
And Ed, as you've been talking, a statement has been released by former President Barack Obama in response to what's taken place in Boulder in Colorado. And I'll just read you briefly the final part of that statement. In it, he says, a once in a century pandemic cannot be the only thing that slows mass shootings in this country. We shouldn't have to choose between one type of tragedy and another. It's time for leaders everywhere to listen to the American people when they say enough is enough because this is a normal we can no longer afford. Uh, Pretty powerful words there, Daniel, from former President Barack Obama. And he, of course, faced his own moment uh, in the conversation around gun control uh, in 2012 with the the shooting, the school shooting at Sandy Hook. It felt, I was working in Washington, D.C. at the time for the BBC, and that moment felt like a really uh, sort of pivotal turning of a page, if you like, on how people were going to talk about gun control in the US. You look down now all of these years later, and I'm sure many would contend that in reality, not much has changed at all. Would you say, Daniel, that following what we're seeing in Colorado today and then last week in Atlanta, do you think the patterns are going to be the same? Or will this, do you think, if it's possible to say, prove to be some kind of moment where the conversation changes? Yeah, we would really hope it is uh, that moment, Tomas, but we uh, happen to always think that, of course, uh, 2012 and and Sandy Hook, as you referenced, I I can't believe it was that long ago, just as uh, Ed speaking about Columbine um, in in 1999. I can't believe how many years have passed since then. And and the conversation hasn't really seemed to advance all that much. I think in America, obviously, uh, so often the conversation is around uh, freedoms with with gun control and and, uh, obviously... Uh, that Second Amendment is, is always referenced, uh, but I think uh, it, it will be very important for um, people to continue to pressure their representatives uh, for change. And, and Ed uh, pointed out uh, the difference between uh, those in Congress and, and senators, but I think, you know, a lot of these districts are quite diverse and have uh, very wide points of view. So I think it's it's up to people to, to make sure that they are being he- heard and, and and point out where they are on on this debate because uh, we can't keep ending up in in the same place and you know amazing to hear that statement from Barack Obama I feel so often obviously he is uh, the conscience of America but uh, he you know it's it's the same same words sadly uh, over and uh, over again but um, yeah in America it's you never know it's interesting to, to just uh, briefly compare this to to the debate in Canada where there is a, a conversation now about a, a voluntary buyback program, and that is specifically targeting handguns. Well, that's been widely criticized in in Quebec and, and in Montreal, of course, where the Ecole Polytechnique um, shooting happened in 1989, where 14 women were murdered. Uh, and people saying it doesn't it doesn't go far enough. Well, t- you know, ten years ago, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper uh, scrapped the federal long gun registry saying it didn't do anything because, you know, if people are going to commit a crime and get their hands on a gun, it's 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 often not legally uh, purchased. In the United States, it's the exact opposite uh, when these things happen. Very often these guns are legally purchased, and it's it's just unbelievable to think of, of how easy of how easy that is, but uh, I think uh, resources going into uh, mental health and uh, and uh, a lot of resources in Washington going into how uh, we can uh, curb uh, sales uh, for people, uh, I think is, is an important conversation. But uh, when that ends, uh, Tomas, I don't know. Well, they are conversations that we will be returning to here on the late edition.
Next here on today's programme, discussions in many parts of the world are ongoing about reviving travel sectors in the years to come after the worst effects of the pandemic are behind us. And Daniel, for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs, you've spoken to someone who is in the thick of those conversations, I think it's fair to say, Brian Chesky, who is one of the co-founders of Airbnb. You spoke to him for this week's programme. And sum up, if you could, Daniel, before we hear a part of that interview now, uh, what uh, Brian Chesky's feelings were about what the years ahead for Airbnb and travel sectors more broadly might hold from his vantage point. Uh, well, as you might expect, Tomas, he has some very bold uh, views on on the future of travel, and, and those might uh, don't exactly square with with perhaps how how we might see it, how I might see it, specifically on. Uh, business travel, um, and that's something you can tune in to hear to hear more about. But uh, he does uh, hit on a very important point, and it's what uh, helped us grow their business in the past year. Just to give you a little bit of context, uh, when lockdowns hit. A year ago, Airbnb lost 80% of their business in eight weeks, and, and uh, Brian Chesky had the very difficult uh, uh, task of, of laying off a quarter of their workforce, which was very difficult. But he used that time uh, to really think about where he wanted the company to go, and what they decided on was the really important thing for them would be their hosts. And so they've, uh, they raised a lot of money. They have given equity to a lot of their hosts. And the purpose there is to try to uh, build the community on that front. And I asked him very specifically how that works for Airbnb uh, in creating an incentive for more people to be hosts and to be uh, full-time hosts, because obviously that has raised many, many issues in cities all over the world. There's there's plenty of examples from Paris to Barcelona and, and further afield on on the issues that creates for for locals and uh, rents going up and uh, you know them taking sort of the, the soul out of a lot of uh, key neighborhoods for cities but he says uh, that the way people will travel will be much different obviously uh, we have more long-term rentals has helped build their business back with people working remotely and deciding to stay in one place for a long time the new digital nomad people uh, you know moving to a different city and, and using Airbnb as a rent for for a short term maybe a couple of months so they've put a lot of emphasis on that. And we can have a listen to, to how he answered that question, Tomas. When I came to Silicon Valley in 2007, the word tech may as well have been a dictionary definition for the word good. I mean, when I came to Silicon Valley, everyone was making the world a better place. YouTube was cat videos. Facebook is a way to catch up your friends. Twitter was a way to like tell your friends you're like having a milkshake. Like it all seemed very innocent. And I think 13, 14 years after I came to Silicon Valley, I think we're reevaluating that technology is not inherently good nor bad. Technology can be used for good or bad. And it's up to the people designing the technology to be inherently fairly humanistic and to know that technology could be used for harm and you have to be very careful. And that is a design challenge. I think maybe the designer in me thinks about the system holistically and says, this could be a major problem. So let's now talk about Airbnb. When we started Airbnb, it never occurred to us that it would become so popular that in some communities, some people would be taking housing off the market and that locals would have a major problem with that. But one of the things we did a number of years ago is we said, we want to partner with cities. We want to strengthen the communities we operate in. Despite anyone's feelings about Airbnb, I want them to know we actually do want the communities to be stronger because we're there, not weaker. 
So what we did about a decade ago is we started building relationships and partnerships with cities. In the last 10 years, we've built 1,000 partnerships with cities. We're in 100,000 cities. We've only gotten to about 1,000, but that's still a lot of partnerships. We are one of the largest collector emitter of hotel tax, but more importantly, we've obliged to numerous registration systems. Cities will say, hey, I want to limit the number of Airbnbs. You have to get a registration. You're only allowed to rent X nights a year, and we have obliged. And most of the time, it's very cooperative. Occasionally, there are some challenges, but most of the time, it's cooperative. That's kind of like step one. But there's a bigger, more profound thing that I would like to talk about for one second. It's this. I think what you're describing really is over-tourism. Travelers going to a community is not bad. On balance, it's a net good thing. It's bad when there's too many people going to too few places and they're too transient in nature. So what we want is to not have everyone flood one city. We have 100,000 cities on Airbnb. So the very best solution is to think of this like a design problem. How can we, number one designed to spread out demand. So they're not all going to New York City or Barcelona. They're discovering communities that want them there. Number two, we actually can point to demand to cities who actually want travel. It turns out there's thousands of communities that are desperate for travel. And in a recession where travel has dried up, there are actually many economies, local economies that are actually failing and do need travelers. But the last thing is we also don't want people to think of themselves as travelers because you know a traveler kind of has no responsibility for where they're going. And we want people thinking like they're kind of temporary locals. You're a guest, but you got to treat it as if you live there and you have to be part of the local community. And it's really on the host to make sure that they are hosting responsible people. If the people are going to host house parties or do really pernicious things in communities, they're going to get banned from the platform. So to me, just to take a step back, I'll just summarize by saying, I think this is a design challenge. I don't think it's inherently a flaw in the model, but if you are not careful, it could cause a major problem. So that's why we take this very seriously. Yeah, I guess a lot of people might have expected that you would become a property manager or get into real estate, as you already alluded to. But I think, as you're saying, it's more about working with cities to create the best case scenario. So talk to me then about going forward and connecting people and and the focus you're putting on experiences, but also on the lives you can create for your hosts, who in part, I think, are taking equity and and becoming quite important for the brand. Uh, You know, we've just heard in London, here this week that Uber has said its drivers will become workers with, you know, benefits and, and a minimum wage. So they're, you know, getting brought into the company. So so how do you sort of work to, you know, advance the experience of your host, but also the people that are using the platform to rent? One of the things we did before we went public is I got a piece of advice from somebody. They said, institutionalize your intentions so that even as a public company, you can minimize what conflicts your vision. And what they really meant was, once you go public, the cement of your company gets a little hardened. What do you want to bake into the company before you go public? And I said, one of the things I want to bake in is to create a host endowment. I want to set aside equity for host. And so one of the things we did is we took 9.2 million shares of Airbnb equity, and we put it into what is essentially a Airbnb host endowment, kind of like a college endowment, where it would grow every year. But then some of the appreciation would get distributed into the host each year. So that was the idea. That endowment is nearly $2 billion today and growing. I hope it's one day larger than most college endowments. And we created a host advisory board 
of 17 hosts from 14 countries to advise us on how to spend that money and reinvest it back to the host community. We also allowed hosts to invest in our IPO. And we had, I think it was 15,000 hosts, if I'm not mistaken, who invested. They bought stock at $68 a share. As you know, the stock price is, at the time of this recording, around triple. So those hosts have done really well. And so these were just some of the many things we tried to do. But I just want to say, like, our commitment to hosts is just beginning because I've committed to putting more than $100 million of my own equity into the host endowment. And we're going to continue to invest in our host because we are nothing without our host. In the end of the day, Airbnb is more of a community than anything else. I mean, yeah, we are a technology company in a sense, but what people are buying isn't technology. They're not buying real estate. We're not like Zillow. We're, we're at the center of our company are our hosts and our people. And so that leads to your second question. What is Airbnb about and where is it going? You know, when we started Airbnb, our first tagline was, travel like a human. The idea was that you're like kind of treated for who you are and you're seen for who you are and you're valued for who you are. And that was kind of the idea. I mean, it was idealistic, but I can tell you we, we definitely believed it in the early days. We realized that I had these like two crazy ideas when we started Airbnb, these two crazy beliefs, and people thought I was absurd. The first idea was we thought people were fundamentally good. That sounds kind of crazy, because if you open any newspaper, you wouldn't think they're good. If people are good, why is every headline about the worst of humanity? I think there was a famous quote by a former chief justice of the United States who said, I don't read the front page of the newspaper. I read the sports section. The front page is filled with man's failures. The sports page is filled with man's successes. I kind of feel like, you know, despite what we read in the news, people are finally good. And I now can tell you that we have the data to prove it. We probably have more data than anyone to prove what happens when 800 million people live together. Mostly good things, sometimes bad things, but statistically people are good. Brian Chesky there, co-founder of Airbnb. And you can hear that interview in full on this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs with our very own Daniel Bache. That premieres at 20 hundred hours London time tomorrow, right here on Monocle 24. Well, finally here on the late edition, votes in Israel are being counted in the fourth general election to have been held there in two years. And on today's edition of The Globalist, a little earlier today, uh, the journalist Alison Kaplan-Somner told us about how election fatigue had creeped into the democratic process in Israel ahead of the vote today. Israel, of course, has had coalition governments in the past, but I don't think the picture's ever been quite as complicated as this time, because for the first time, there is no one major rival challenging Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. His opposition is split into three parts, not exactly a third, third, third. His primary challenger is Yair Lapid, but uh, Yair Lapid doesn't have close to enough seats to really challenge uh, Netanyahu's party when it comes to forming a government. So really, we're looking at either a victory for Netanyahu or a very complicated compilation of other parties. And it looks like inevitably they would have to somehow split or rotate the premiership. So there's no clear challenge. It's even more complicated than usual this time. Alison Kaplan-Sommer there, giving us the overview of what's at play in Election Day in Israel today. Um, Ed, I suppose it's perhaps not surprising that being asked to vote in a general election four times in two years has left some people in Israel feeling pretty wearied by the process. But the idea of, of being wearied or, or perhaps stretched thin by a story is something that's pretty pertinent for lots of journalists 
in, in many parts of the world, especially during this past year, isn't it, for, for fairly obvious reasons? I mean, obviously, no journalist at Monocle 24 or, or Monocle magazine would ever would ever fall victim to such a thing like that, Tomas. But um, <laughs> no, I hear what you're Correct saying. Uh, obviously, yeah, I mean, Israel's a prime example, isn't it? I mean, just covering what seems to be a sort of vicious cycle of the same errors repeating themselves. The fact that, you know, you need to get 61 seats out of 120 in, in the parliament, in the Knesset. And invariably that never happens. And it's sort of an infight. Uh, and just seeing coalitions fall apart and going back to the elections would be hard, possibly hard to cover as a journalist as well. Because, um, well, also because the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu is just such a survivalist, the fact that he just seems to stick around in Israeli politics uh, for such a long time, you know, 12 years, in fact, that he's uh, been in power. Uh, but looking elsewhere, yes, uh, I think you can feel like you're sort of on a treadmill. Um, you know, obviously at Monocle, we cover lots of different things. We're not a daily. Uh, obviously, we have our daily shows, our daily news show on the radio. But our, our monthly magazine is a slightly different look at the world. We try and extract you know, the positive stories. Uh, But having said all of that, if you are perhaps a journalist working a daily beat for for a newspaper and you're covering coronavirus day in, day out, if you were in Bergamo, for example, covering the outbreak of the first wave uh, here in Italy uh, during coronavirus, that must have been pretty grinding. Daniel, the final word to you. I suppose there are some journalists out there who would say that it's exactly the kind of big story that sort of energises and focuses their approach and their engagement with a with a particular event or a particular moment. Do you think that the sheer number of just really big stories in, in many parts of the world that have unfolded over the past few years, do you think they've changed that dynamic in any way? Yeah, that's that's really quite interesting. And I'm uh, just having a look to see how many times uh, Andrew Muller and the Foreign Desk have covered uh, Israeli elections because it keeps keeps happening again and again. And I, I think a lot of us aren't really sure what's happening there. But if you're, I mean, uh, to use that example, a reporter on the ground there, that is a very important story that uh, needs to be told. And, and on the point of engagement, that is the most important story, I think uh, you can tell. And, and I'm, you know, I'm so struck by uh, just the past few years that we've lived through outside of, of the pandemic, as, as you say, there, there are other big things. And obviously, the big story here was Brexit, which, uh, you know, for me being here now three years living in the UK, it was it was uh, for the first two years, the only story it seemed like. And it, it's so interesting now to think about how much of that conversation, I think, was missed, because uh, now we're realizing how integrated Britain was in the EU and how that has impacted people where well most of the reporting on on the surface uh, for many people if they picked up a newspaper or, or listened to any newscast would would just be over the the quibbling between diplomats and politicians over over the wording and who was going to get what in a in, in a future trade deal so yeah I mean it, it's interesting to think about uh, that dynamic as you point out but um, you know, Engaging with so many stories and when there's so many big world events is difficult for a listener or a reader. And, uh, you know, doing your best to point as a journalist to, to point out the importance of, of why that story is being told and, and doing that w- with a, a very close lens on the specific issue, I think, uh, makes it uh, 
it makes it interesting, but also makes things uh, really clear for people when uh, we're trying to uh, wade through uh, this incredible am- amount of information and news that comes our way all the time. Well, Daniel Bache and Ed Stocker, a duo that I, for one at least, will never weary of. Thank you very much for the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for, I'm afraid to say, for today's edition of The Late Edition. Today's editor was Sam Impey in London. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to take a listen to the brand new episode of Monocle on Design, which premiered a few hours ago here on Monocle 24. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow. Music.